Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health here on Dash Radio. I'm your host, Julie Alexandria, bringing you the very latest in healthcare trends and news each week. And today we're joined by Dr. Stephen O'Day from Providence St. Joseph Health. And our topic we'll be discussing is cancer research. So if anybody has any questions for our expert, Dr. Stephen O'Day, please feel free to submit them via our Twitter handle or our Facebook page while we're live here today. We want to hear from you. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and also on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. And don't forget to use the hashtag Future of Health. That's hashtag Future of Health. And we'll be on the lookout for those throughout the show. We definitely want to hear from you. All right, let's get it started first by welcoming, he is no stranger to the show, Dr. Stephen O'Day. Wonderful to have you here in studio with us. Thanks, Julie. It's great to be here. So you are no stranger to the show, but for those who may be unfamiliar, please, if you could state your role at Providence St. Joseph Health and a little bit about your background. So I'm a medical oncologist, professor of medical oncology at the uh, Providence St. John's Medical Center in Santa Monica. I'm also director of clinical research and the immuno-oncology program there. What does immuno-oncology mean? So it's a relatively new field, but in the last 10 years, the uh, manipulating the immune system to fight cancer has really revolutionized how we treat cancer. And in fact, it's replacing many standard chemotherapy-type treatments with much lower side effects and much more durable long-term benefit. When we talk about cancer research, I mean, there are so many questions. Tell us a bit more about what cancer research looks like in your health system. Yeah, so cancer research is a very broad uh, descriptor. There are, um, there's basic research, which is really more bench laboratory research. And then there were what we call clinical research, where we're actually bringing new treatments to the clinical patient care realm. And at Providence St. John's, and the Providence system in general, we do both, a little of both. We both bring new treatments called clinical research to patients in real time. And then we're also using their materials, their tumor tissues and their blood and others, to really translate what we call basic more research about why are they doing well or why are they not doing well so that we can really discover better therapies. So we really have a broad research program across both types of research. How often are there new breakthroughs, new forms of research, new forms of testing when it comes to cancer research and cancer cure development? So it's fascinating to me that, you know, progress, if you look at any field, goes through what we call exponential phases, and then there's plateaus, and everyone gets frustrated, and then there's just some new idea or new discovery that launches an exponential growth again. So I would say in the 70s and 80s, We made some progress, but we were really in a plateau until about 2000, so about 18 years ago, when this whole field of immune oncology, the immune system, really broke boundaries. And now, in the last 10 to 15 years, truly exponential growth. Mm -hmm. Do you think, and this is a a bit of a diversion here, but I just want to know, as far as cancer and the fact that we're living longer, are we seeing more cases of cancer because we as a human race are living longer? Absolutely. So cancer is a disease of aging. Obviously, you can. there are childhood cancers. They're, they're relatively rare in comparison. And then as you age, it's fascinating that your immune system weakens. And this is the relationship between the immune system and cancer. Mm-hmm. And you clearly have more cancer as you age. And um, this is really the major cancers, breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate, and lung. We call those the big four they're clearly related to aging. So with each decade of life you live, you're at higher risk. Sure. It's the price of aging, I guess. (laughs) Well, tell us about the new drug development in melanoma over the past two decades. You just mentioned the big four. Melanoma was not one of them. No, melanoma is actually the fastest rising incident cancer in the last three decades, meaning it's increasing in total numbers, but still it's dwarfed behind the major four. But what separates melanoma is it affects people about two decades before most cancers. So the, the, the average age is 40 to 50 years instead of 60, 70, 80. So this is a deadly cancer that's hitting people in the primes of their lives with lots of life years ahead, young children. So it was devastating. And 10 years ago, uh, we really had an average survival once it had metastasized about six months. In 2018, it's, it's almost three and a half years the average, and we're probably curing up to half of patients with widespread melanoma, truly extraordinary research progress. 
And as far as drug developments, has there been? So the advances in melanoma, and this is mimicking in other diseases because melanoma is the um, sort of the prototype of the immune system and cancer. But so the major drug developments are these new immune drugs that target the body's T cells, which are the little Pac-Man cells that normally defend us against cancer. Mm -hmm. So we're now actually giving treatments that reinvigorate these exhausted T cells and send them back into the battle. The other major... Could that also, and I'm sorry to interrupt here, but you say T-cells. When you hear the term T-cells, a lot of times you hear that in conjunction with HIV and AIDS. So is this something that could also be used in the fight against HIV and AIDS? The discoveries in immunology with cancer are starting to cross a little bit in the field of of HIV. In HIV, the virus actually attacks the T-cells, and so you have too few. And because of that, you're at more risk for infections and cancer. Because the T cell's primary role is to defend against infection and cancer. So it's a little different in cancer in the sense that it, we're not deficient in T cells, but our T cells are not, they're exhausted. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is bringing T cells back to life. Having said that, I think discovery in immunology in general is starting to cross between some, a disease like HIV versus cancer versus what we call autoimmune diseases. These are diseases in which your own. T-cells attack your normal tissues, diseases like lupus or Crohn's disease. or These, these are what we call autoimmune disease. So the field is, the research in the field of immunology, and T-cells are a big component of that, really uh, is broadly applicable to HIV-type infectious problems, to cancer, and to what we call autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. And as we're talking about autoimmune and immunity in general, tell us about the immune checkpoint inhibitor. So the big breakthrough in melanoma that now has been translated into all cancers, because remember, when we help these T cells become more potent and vigorous, we're not really so concerned about the cancer directly. We're just making the immune system strong, and then cancer can't serve any cancer. So the progress, so T cells have what we call checkpoints. They have proteins on their surface that cause the T cells to get exhausted. And so these new drugs, it's just unbelievable, but they block these exhaustive proteins on the surface and make a middle-aged, exhausted T cell back into an adolescent, vigorous T cell, and then they can go back and do their thing. And, and literally, this, this dramatic response in melanoma now is... Uh, successful in lung cancer, bladder cancer, head and neck cancers, liver cancers, pretty much you name it, certain breast cancers. Because it's not, the magic is it's not really that specific for the cancer. It's more mm-hmm. let your immune system do the heavy lifting. How long until that becomes available? It's now available across probably eight or ten cancers, these checkpoint inhibitors. So these are drugs that we give intravenously mm-hmm. about every three or four weeks to patients. They actually can live a Unlike chemotherapy, they're not losing their hair or having severe nausea or vomiting. There are side effects. that They can cause some inflammation at different areas of the body. But by and large, the vast majority of patients who get these drugs can live normal lives and feel great, and their cancer is disappearing. So what an amazing situation Yeah, it compared sounds like to 20 a, years ago. Sure. Yeah. No, but it sounds like a booster. You're basically Absolutely. boosting someone's immune system so that they can fight it off themselves no matter what because the Because normally is. we get cancers all day long and the immune system is very efficient at just clearing them so think of the immune system as a terrific defense against cancer but as you age cells break uh, become have a higher propensity to become malignant so it sometimes could overwhelm a, a weakened immune system and the cancers can get out and establish themselves but if we bring them back to life let the t-cells do the work we can just stand and watch this miracle happen and it's it's extraordinary to see lives turned around dramatically now. That's incredible. What are you currently working on? What has you excited right now? So in the clinic right now in melanoma, and I do not only melanoma clinical research, so getting these new drugs to patients in new combinations. So it's all about now we've got two basic drugs that work very well together on the T cell. But there are many other cells in the immune system that we haven't touched, and they're called natural killer cells or uh, and other cells. And we're now trying to bring help these cells along, not just T cells, so that in combination we create a cocktail of drugs, just like in HIV where cocktails of medicines are better, more efficient at clearing the virus than one single antiviral. Same thing in 
cancer, we're looking at cocktails of immune drugs. And so that's really where I'm focusing mm-hmm. my work in the next uh, five or 10 years. And tell us about the development of the anti-PD-1 antibodies. Is that right? Did I say that right? Yeah. That, and what that helps. Is that what you're talking about yes. as far as those so developments? So that is one of the checkpoints. So that's one of the proteins on the T-cells. It stands for um, uh, program death ligand one or program death so this is a protein that is basically like a suicide signal to the t-cells so when t-cells get really tired they're not doing their job there's a signal that comes up called pd1 that says it's time to shut down completely you have to go you're fired and so we're blocking so the cell's trying to commit suicide and we're blocking that ability so now not only are we blocking this ability to commit suicide now we're bringing it back to life so that it's more vigorous. And that's really the metaphor with, that we're seeing happening in real time in the clinic. So again, going with the same idea of boosting the patient's immune system so that they can fight off whatever cancer that it is. Yes, and each cancer has a... I don't mean to say that all patients are, are, are having success from these checkpoints, but certainly in melanoma, it's about two-thirds of patients. In other diseases, it may only be 20 or 30%. But when it works... It's long-term survival. And now our goal is to see if we can bring up the percentages across the other cancers so that we're getting to 60%, 70% like we are in melanoma. Does that also pertain to the MAPK inhibitors that you're talking about? No, so that's the other area of melanoma research that has really helped us move the field forward. So independent of the immune sort of research that's gone on, there's also what we call genetic mutations of cancer cells. So each cell has its own sort of fingerprint of mutations. A mutation is a is a abnormality in the gene that leads to a protein being produced that's abnormal. And so tumors and it's and that protein helps the tumor cell grow and survive. So we can now actually interrogate the tumor. So now we're off the immune system and onto the cancer and each and to, and really reveal the cancer's fingerprint and then its proteins that it uses to help itself survive and spread and kill people. And we can block those specific proteins. And the MAPK is a pathway called the MAP kinase pathway. And now we have oral drugs that melanoma patients can get if they have that mutation, which about 55, 0% of patients have. If you have that mutation, these oral drugs also work well, and we're using them in conjunction with the immune drugs instead of chemotherapy. So in melanoma, we really don't need any chemotherapy at all. That's incredible. I mean, just to have an alternative to chemotherapy, that's a breakthrough in itself. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but this is a fascinating conversation. We have so much more to get to. We're talking about cancer research, and we will be right back with much more from Dr. Stephen O'Day. Stay with us. Thank you. 
You're listening to Future of Health here on Dash Radio, and we are talking about cancer research. Again, Dr. Stephen O'Day joining us in studio and answering some really just fascinating questions. As far as clinical trials, let's talk about clinical trials for a minute. How does one get access? So, Julie, that's a really important question because there's a lot of myths around clinical trials that need to be clarified. Uh, obviously, all patients will get the best possible standard of care uh, for whatever condition they have. And I'm going to speak about cancer specifically. Um, so unlike other diseases, though, where clinical trials may be a small proportion of patients would benefit and, and the standard of cares are pretty straightforward, you know, obviously we have a lot of progress to making cancer. And yes, the standard therapies have been a step forward. But most patients are very interested in getting access, not just to standard of care, but that next new drug, particularly patients with advanced cancer, obviously. It's a different thing if you have an earlier stage curable cancer. So the unfortunate fact is that about only about 3% of American adults participate in clinical trials in cancer that are el- potentially eligible. It's very different. Pediatrics, it's interesting. Pediatric cancer, almost everyone participates, a large, much larger percentage Obviously, because the stakes are huge and people want to make sure they get access to absolutely the best for their young child. In in adults, there's a little less of that. And there's some myths about, you know, is it going to cost me more money? Is it going to delay my treatment? Am I going to get a placebo? These are really important issues. So let's just talk about it. Uh, There may be some minor delay getting ready for a clinical trial, but it really doesn't make any difference in the long term for the advanced cancer. So the initial process is the investigator or the doctor, someone like myself, talking about what the standard of care is and then saying, well, we have access in addition to the standard of care of this new promising agent. And then there's a thorough discussion back and forth. There's an extensive consent form the patient reviews. And then after all that, if the risks and benefits are discussed and the patient wants to participate, then there's a signing of the consent form, and then the study takes over in terms of the different visits. Now, it is true that there are probably more doctor-related visits and a little bit more of a hassle factor on the clinical trials, but the upside is potentially huge. And then in regards to, and financially, the laws are that insurance will pay for the standard of care procedures. Anything that's experimental is covered by the study. So the point here is there shouldn't be any out-of-pocket penalty to someone who wants to participate in clinical research. And by and large, that is the, the case. And then finally, the placebo issue. You know, I, you know very rarely in, in, in cancer trials, we do use a placebo, but only in patients who are also getting the standard of care. So no one would have care other than the standard withheld in the efforts of moving the science forward. The vast majority of our treatments are standard of care plus something else. And in that situation, we usually don't have any placebo. It's just that standard treatment versus another treatment or adding something to the standard. And particularly the early phase trials, the stage, what we call phase one and two trials, there really are no placebos given for that. So, so those are important though, discussions with the patient to reassure them that they're not going to be delayed, that they're getting access to potentially not only the standard care but something better that their insurance company will pay for its part and the study will pay so there's not out of pocket, and that placebos would only be used rarely and only then if they were already getting the absolute best standard uh, of care and we're trying to add on to that. Right, because I would imagine that that would be a major fear or a hesitation for anyone who wanted to sign up for a medical trial. What's the process like as far as a timeline? I mean, if you are given a diagnosis, how long does it take to become part of a trial? So obviously the first process is obviously get, let's just take advanced cancer for an example, because obviously earlier stage cancers may go to surgeons that will move the original cancer, and then the medical oncologist who who manages the, the overall disease would take over. But if you, for example, have a, wide, you know, a widespread cancer or advanced cancer, it's usually getting to a medical oncologist who has an expertise. Now, some medical oncologists see all kinds of cancer, and then some cancers are more specific. And some of the more routine cancers can be handled by you know, a general oncologist. Some of the more specialized or rare cancers, obviously centers of excellence, and, and that kind of care is, is key. Like at our center, we have certain like melanoma is a center of excellence, brain tumors are a center of excellence, 
uh, and then we see more broadly other tumors. So the first part is to get to a, someone who, who understands the disease, centers of excellence, particularly in the rarer cancers, and then have discussions. Most of those centers of excellence will offer clinical trials in addition to the standard as their basic you know, approach. And so then you, know, you see an initial consultation, you get a recommendation, or you may have already been on some standard treatment. It's not working, so then you get referred to a subspecialist who does clinical trials. But once that process happens, usually you can, within a few weeks, two to four weeks, get on to the clinical trial. There's usually not a huge delay in getting started if you choose uh, to do that. It seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, that's why in oncology, particularly in urban areas with sophisticated patients who are, who are you know, have options with centers of excellence. I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I personally think nearly 100% of patients should get uh, standard of care plus a clinical trial. But, I mean, what do you have to lose, right, <laughs> when yeah. you think about it? Well, you know, there are, can be unforeseen side effects associated with sure. a new agent, so you are taking some risks there in terms of, of that, and uh, it obviously may not work, and you've, you've gone through a lot of sometimes extra visits, et cetera. But by and large, when people are presented at centers of excellence that have access to clinical trials, you, you know, we, we put a high, much higher percentage of patients onto them for the reasons you just talked about. Sure. Do you think in our lifetime, will we see a cure for cancer? Well, absolutely. We see cure and long-term survival, I sort of equate, meaning the cancer may not completely go away on all the scans, but if it doesn't ever recur and patients live a normal life and they're not on any extra treatment, I equate that. So, for example, in melanoma, we're already curing up to 50% in that sense of long-term survival without the need for treatment. Uh, and, And in other cancers, it's a smaller percentage, but it is there. So, when people talk about the cure of cancer, obviously cancer is a very mixed, what we call heterogeneous, but lots of different types of cancers. And you can't, so, and we, we are curing subtypes of cancers and within cancer, each subtype. So, so that's there. But what I think it gets to is will we have effective therapies so that most patients who get advanced cancer will not die of their cancer? And I think absolutely in my lifetime, we're going to see the majority of patients surviving their cancer. Obviously, picking up cancer early with preventative and screening tests and then intervening early with surgeries for small, early cancers is better than having to try to cure somebody from an advanced cancer. Well, you mentioned the 50% success rate in management of melanoma, and that seems to be in the forefront of, you know, kind of the first one to, if you can pull it, put a label on it, be cured. Yep. What would you say is next? What's the next so one? it's funny because, you know, melanoma, we were the poor stepchild of the cancer world. At meetings, we got put in the back room and we'd have our little uh, conferences and like meetings within a meetings. But when this immunotherapy broke in 2000, uh, I was fortunate enough to present some of the early major data at what we call a plenary session in front of the whole 50,000 group. And so now melanoma seems to be, even though it's a, still a relatively rare cancer, it gets front and center attention because what people are trying to say is, well, let's take the lead in what's working there. Let's apply it to the other cancers. So I think in terms of we certainly cure uh, childhood leukemias, even adult leukemias, and testicular cancer like what Lance Armstrong, even when they're advanced. So there are subtypes of cancers that we were already doing remarkably well. But the big ones, uh, colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and lung cancer, those, once they metastasize right now, we're curing very few patients. So that is the frontier right now, are those, those big four, and how do we allow the immune system or what we call these targeted mutations uh, treatments work like in melanoma. But melanoma is definitely the prototype mm-hmm. right now. So we like being front and center after I bet. a long, long... Revenge of the nerds. <laughs> you guys you were go. like, now we got our Absolutely. day. Absolutely. Suddenly we're Suddenly very you're the, popular. the bell of the ball. Exactly. Oh, at all the conferences. <laughs> uh, are there any new studies or treatments coming down the pike in any area that people should be on the lookout as far as different types of cancers or different specific trials or breakthroughs going well, on right now? Each cancer has lots of excitement. You know, let's, let's just focus, I think it's appropriate for today, uh, about brain tumors. Uh, obviously, uh, Senator McCain died of that. And talk about a cancer that was in a position melanoma was up until the breakthroughs in melanoma. 
This is a devastating cancer. Again, not a huge cancer in terms of numbers, although it is rising dramatically in the population. It affects people in their 40s and 50s. It's devastating. The average survival is about a year, uh, despite surgery and radiation and chemotherapy. So a lot of attention from the immune point of view and these, these, uh, these targeted mutation markers is going on. And you know, I think, uh, I think there's going to, I mean, we still have a long way to go. I think the intensity of what, uh, what's being done in that, uh, these primary brain tumors, will hopefully be an area that will have a significant breakthrough in the coming uh, decade. And you also said, and you had mentioned in a recent segment with us here on the show, that the progress in the space of cancer research and treatment is tremendous, obviously, as you've reiterated today. But you have patients who previously just had months to live, who are now either cured or have long-term survival. I know there must be a little bit of you know, regret, but there's also so much hope that comes with that as well. A good example is you know, during the sort of... Uh, Two decades ago, the first decade of my career in melanoma, we would lose, and I had a big melanoma practice, but we would lose a handful of patients every week to the disease. Now, we have deaths, and we still have a ways to go, but I would say a handful of deaths a year as opposed to weekly. It's just, that's the dramatic thing. So these patients remind us, and even the ones who end up dying now, on average, will live three, four years before, which is a lot better time to prepare than when they had six months. So, so yes, I think um, it's remarkable to see on a daily basis people living relatively normal lives who had a death sentence just a few years back. And, and it, it's so gratifying as a researcher to keep wanting to do better, and every death still hurts deeply, but thankfully uh, there's less of that now. It's sort of parallel probably to the HIV days when uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, the death rate was just so high, and then suddenly there's this huge change. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will have much more on this cancer research topic discussion. You're listening to Dash Radio.
Welcome back to Future of Health. Our topic today, cancer research, and we are continuing the conversation in studio with the lovely Dr. Stephen O'Day, who is breaking it down for us. What is one piece of advice that you would offer to people who want to do whatever that they possibly can within their power to prevent cancer? So it's pretty clear what the major causes of cancer, other than aging, which none of us can uh, prevent, unfortunately. Um, It's really, there's a couple. Smoking, alcohol, and obesity would be the three clear, strong predictors of cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, lack of exercise, which sort of correlates with obesity in some senses, not always. But um, so clearly not smoking, drinking, you know, to a minimum, uh, certainly not in excess, exercising regularly, and trying to keep a healthy body weight uh, are really powerful, powerful preventers mm-hmm. of cancer as we age. So, so that's what we can do. The other thing we can do is have a good primary care doctor who then advises us on the best possible screening tests to pick up early cancer. And obviously mammograms for women and pap smears are very important. Colonoscopies or assessment of the colon are probably the main areas. Other areas, we haven't been all that successful at screening tests. Um, but so that's really, and then if you do get a cancer, obviously, hopefully it's early stage, and then it's finding good quality cancer doctors that hopefully work as teams and integrate care, and, um, and that a support system around you is really important. All the time when you're online, you get these clickbait uh, pop-ups that say, if you don't want cancer, never eat this food. <laughs> Or, you know, here are the top 10 foods to avoid if you never want to get cancer. Is there anything, is there any correlation linking foods, carcinogens? Um, so individual foods go up and down, and each study will, mm-hmm. will be conflicting. Uh, uh, you know, the key is to eat a healthy, balanced diet, to keep a relatively normal body weight and exercise. And so it's not rocket science. And I think uh, withholding sugars or extreme diets that have not been proven, you know, fruits and vegetables, portion control, um, healthy balanced diet, and and regular low-impact exercise is really hugely valuable. And I think people think that that's not as important as it is. And Mm -hmm. if they really saw the facts, uh, hopefully it will motivate more of us to do it. Why is it so important? Because it makes us feel better as human beings and it reduces the risks of cancer. Okay, I'm sold. (laughs) (laughs) Easier said than done. I'm sure. I'm sure that you have so many stories, so many wonderful, sad, heartbreaking, poignant, meaningful stories that you have um, through your many years of practice. Um, Is there one that really hits home for you that proves that you're in the right place. This is exactly what you were meant to do. Your life's calling. Yeah. Well, there are many, as you say, and uh, one comes to mind just so vividly to me because, and it actually captures some of our earlier discussions about having, you know, access to clinical excellence centers and access to clinical trials. So uh, maybe 10 years ago or so, um, uh, I took on a case where uh, about a gentleman in his 40s, very healthy guy from Laguna Beach. Married, two beautiful children, beautiful wife. He was an airline pilot for American Airlines. And he had a very aggressive melanoma that uh, was treated surgically. And then we had to undergo a year of a standard treatment called interferon that really is a miserable treatment. And then the patient's tumor came back all over his body. And he was in sort of that six-month survival at 45 with two little kids. And... um, so then he got access to what we the best chemotherapy uh, that we had at the time that didn't work. And then one of our new clinical trials with these checkpoint drugs, one of the drugs that we had talked about earlier that activates T-cells, he was, the trial was almost closed to accrual. Literally, I think he may have gotten the last, this was an international global trial, he may have gotten the last spot on that trial. His tumors went away full remission, and he's now lives a normal life. But what's so cool is he obviously resumed flying for American Airlines. And I was flying for a conference to the East Coast one time and uh, was waiting to get on the plane. And you know how the pilots come on. And, and I thought I took a double take, but it was him. And so he like says hello, and then he boards the plane. And then like midway through the flight, 
he made an announcement. Like, there's a very special doctor on board. He didn't go into any details about his case, <laughs> thankfully. Or I think the passengers may have been a little concerned. But anyway, and then they, they gave me a bottle of wine when I left. And, but, you know, talk about um, just changing someone's life and seeing him survive a cancer that he wouldn't have. And it's really a team effort for the field of cancer medicine and cancer research that really allowed him to be part of that. And I keep in touch, and it's just an extraordinary. It's, it's not an isolated event. Thankfully now, uh, I get to have a lot of these experiences on a regular basis. That has to be so uplifting for you personally, not only as a doctor, as a clinician, as a researcher, but as a human. Absolutely. I mean, cancer and is human. Being a doctor is human. And um, boy, it, it just makes you so grateful to be part of this process and to give people hope and inspire wellness in, 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 in against cancer. I'm sure. And I bet that for every story like your pilot story, there are also very sad stories as well. But it's those stories that I'm sure keep you going. Absolutely. Well, we're going to open it up to our social media network. We want to hear from you guys. And we have a lot of questions because, listen, cancer affects us all. At this point, if if it hasn't affected you personally, you know somebody or perhaps a family member who has been affected by the disease. So we have lots of questions here for Dr. O'Day. So we're now going to open it up to our social media networks because we have so many questions pouring in for you, Dr. O'Day, because cancer, as you know, affects us all. If it doesn't affect you personally, you know someone, perhaps a family member, unfortunately. So we have lots of questions here. Facebook, Troy on Facebook, he asks... What are the most survivable cancers? So, uh, Troy, you know, all cancers, if they're caught very early, can be survivable. I think in terms of cancers that become more advanced and metastasize, what we would call advanced cancers, uh, there are a few that are the most survivable at this point. Obviously, leukemias, childhood leukemias, and even some adult leukemias, and what we call lymphomas or Hodgkin's disease are highly curable, even in an advanced stage. Testicular cancer in men, highly curable, even at an advanced stage. Melanoma, I can't believe I'm saying that, but melanoma (laughs) is highly curable in an advanced stage. And then the other cancers, you know, the big cancers, breast cancer, lung, bowel cancer, prostate, are, are still not very curable, although we are prolonging survival. Although there are subgroups of lung cancer and breast cancer patients that with some of these newer treatments, we're starting to probably... uh, use the word cure or long-term survival. Lindsay on Twitter asks, what was your training like to become a researcher and a doctor? And was that always your passion? So interestingly, yes. Uh, From an early age, I I wanted to be a doctor. I think I had congenital heart disease when I was young. And so at age five, I had to have heart surgery and then have have had some uh, issues with that over the years. My mom was a nurse, actually a cardiac surgery operating room nurse. So I think I was affected by illness and uh, the trauma and threat of disease at a fairly young age. And I think with my mom's example uh, in, the, in the field of medicine, um, I, I identified fairly early as wanting to do it. Then, So obviously I went to college at Williams College in Massachusetts and then on to Oxford University. And then I did my medical training at Johns Hopkins in, in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, a great medical school. And then I went up to Harvard and Boston to do my cancer training. And so it's a long process to get trained in medicine and then cancer medicine. And then I came out to Los Angeles in 1994 really to focus on melanoma because at the John Wayne Cancer Institute at Providence St. John's where I currently work, they had a renowned uh, melanoma, world-class melanoma program. And my mentor there, Dr. Donald Morton, the great melanoma surgeon, recruited me from Boston. And it's really, I was coming out for a few years to learn the field and then move back east that was 24 years ago. So I definitely love L.A. and, and just uh, the environment. It's been quite a ride. Wow, that's quite a history. What I, my question for you, your mother was a cardiac nurse. You had a cardiac surgery. Did she attend your pediatric cardiac surgery? No, they wouldn't. Even then, they wouldn't allow that. But she was obviously close by. But the surgeon who she scrubbed for in the operating room I remember his name, Dr. Crystal, and uh, anyway, she scrubbed for him who did my operation. So 
Uh, obviously, they didn't let her in the operating room, though. Uh, right. A little too close for comfort. Too close for comfort. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. This next question is from Tammy on Twitter. Can you volunteer for cancer research as the child of a cancer patient, even if you don't have it? So at, at our the Providence St. John's Health Center and, and John Wayne Cancer Institute, we have a cancer genetics program. Dr. Ora Gordon is one of our top uh, genetics uh, people and uh, physicians, and she has a, a research program for patients and families, extended families, who have a high risk of cancer in the family. And we're studying genes that may be what we call susceptibility genes for cancers, so yes, even a, a, as a patient or as a family member who's unaffected by a cancer to this state, uh, there are programs where they, you can be monitored and studied uh, with your loved one who may have the cancer. What percentage of cancers are genetic? So that's a great question. So um, there are what's called highly penetrable uh, genes that what we would call family-associated or hereditary cancers. Uh, it's a, it's an, probably only about 10 to 15% of cancer is truly hereditary, meaning that there are certain genes that run in families in what we call the germline or the genetic makeup of people passed through generations that actually provoke cancer. So there is a small group. Now, we're learning more and more about cancers that may not currently be hereditary, but when you really discover new genes... They may be, but for right now, maybe 10 or 15%. So most of cancers are what we call idiopathic, or they, they're not hereditary in the sense that they come with advanced aging and environmental factors like smoking, alcohol, obesity, and others that, that create the cancer. So it is important. The features of hereditary cancer are really young age of onset, multiple members in your family with either the same type of cancer or there's certain groups of different cancers that hang together in these genetic Mm -hmm. uh, family syndromes that we call. So so obviously, uh, if you do have a high propensity of cancer in your family, particularly in people under 50, because right, if you start to get some cancers after 50, some of that could just be the aging or lifestyle. But particularly if you have early penetrance cancers in a family, it's certainly worth exploring what your risk might be. And because we may screen and try to prevent those cancers in a higher risk population. Dr. Gordon at our institution is really all about trying to identify who's at risk and not scare them with that risk, but give them the power to be monitored closely, live their lives, and be screened maybe at a different rate than the normal population. Right, because now we're hearing that you can even be tested for certain genetic strains, like I believe it's, correct me if I'm wrong, the BRC strain for breast cancer that that's something that women can be tested for to see if they are going to be at risk. Yeah, so the BRCA1 and 2 genes are, are what we talked about, that hereditary 10 or 15%, particularly present in Ashkenazi Jewish populations, but also seen in, in non-Jewish populations. So yes, th- those are the kind of genes that are so highly penetrable, and that they are associated with breast cancer and ovarian cancer, and in men sometimes prostate cancer and even melanoma. So if you have a, one of those genes, then your risk of developing one of these other cancers in your lifetime could be as high as 60 or 80%. So obviously those patients need aggressive monitoring and sometimes even preventative surgery, depending on the situation. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will get to more of your social media questions. Keep them coming. We want to hear from you. You're listening to Dash Radio.
Welcome back to Future of Health here on Dash Radio. We are talking about cancer research and we are opening it up to the social media questions. We want to hear from you. We are going to continue with some wonderful questions here. Dan on Twitter asks, does my wife need a mammogram every year? So Dan, um, the current recommendations uh, for screening mammograms are generally between 40 and 45 to get a baseline mammogram. And then it's really... Yearly or every other year is the general recommendation. And the primary care physician is usually will assess that risk and need. And depending on how dense the breasts are and other factors in family history, there may be other tests in addition to mammograms that are used. But that's the basic um, uh, recommendations. Well, staying on the topic of screenings, Bill on Facebook wants to know, what kind of cancer screenings are available currently? So... Um, Remarkably few. <laughs> uh, remember, prevention is a big deal in terms of the, the modifiable risk factors that we talked about earlier. But in terms of screening, I think breast cancer screening with mammography, pap smears for cervical cancer screening, and cervical cancer vaccines at, in children, both boys and girls, is hugely important because oral pharyngeal cancers, uh, which are also virally based, uh, are important in boys as well as uh, cervical cancer in girls. So routine, uh, it's called the papillomavirus screening, which is the virus that it puts you at risk for, it's sexually transmitted and can be put you at risk for cervical and oral cancers, um, is, should, should both boys and girls. Um, colon cancer screening is reasonably effective with different methods, but colonoscopies may be one of the standard treatments. Um, in high-risk smokers, uh, CT scans of the chest uh, have now been established as one way to screen, uh, but only in people with a, a strong history of smoking. Brenda on Facebook wants to know, how much money is put towards cancer research annually? So I don't have the exact numbers. It's a good question. But hundreds of millions of dollars are spent both in research laboratory science, what we call basic science, and then there's what we call translational science, which is still bench research, but it's with human specimens from the clinic. So that's called translational research. And then the third area is clinical research that we spoke about, which is really cutting edge new drugs in clinical trials for patients in the clinic. So between those three areas, hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars are spent on cancer research. Dale on Twitter wants to know, how is skin cancer prevented or treated? Well, that's a great question because I failed to uh, talk about two other screening uh, effects that we can have. In men, testicular cancer, self-exams, very important in your 20s and 30s. Uh, so because that picking up an early testicular cancer, an abnormal lump, is, it can be very helpful and life-saving. Uh, in terms of the skin, it's one organ of the body that we can really physically examine. We don't have to probe with internal scans, etc. And so skin exams are hugely important. And people with lots of moles are certainly at higher risk for melanoma, but melanoma, even in people with lots of moles, tends to arise in the skin between the moles. So the most important thing is if there's anything new on your skin that's changing in size or itching or bleeding, it needs to be looked at immediately. 
because skin cancers, which are the most common cancer of all, basal cell carcinomas are the most common skin cancer. Second most common is squamous cell cancer of the skin. And then melanoma, much smaller incidence, but much more deadly than the other two. So you can really pick up early skin cancers with with, uh, good screening. And obviously avoiding ultraviolet radiation and good sunscreen and shade and all those good things are important too. What is the correct SPF that people should be wearing? So, you know, anything, it needs to be what's called broad spectrum. So if you you have to see on the label, specifically the words broad spectrum, which includes UVA and UVB protection. Uh, But unless it says broad spectrum, it's not a complete sunscreen. After that, 30 is adequate. The difference between 30 and 50 is in your pocketbook, not, I mean, this is minute differences. So I, there's no reason really to get more than a 30. Uh, the key with sunscreen is putting enough on. People under uh, lather themselves, so to speak. You need to put it on optimally 30 minutes before you go out because it takes time to get activated. And then reapplying frequently, particularly after you're in the water. So put, it, put enough on. 30 minutes before you go out, and then reapply regularly, and avoiding the midday sun, and seeking shade, and using protective clothing as much as possible. Not only will this help reduce your risk of skin cancers all over, but I'm appealing to our vanity, because, because leathery, old skin will be premature if you get too much sun exposure. It's not cute. And tanning beds are the absolute worst. They were felt initially to be safer, than ultraviolet radiation. In fact, just the opposite. They're UVA. They're highly worse than ultraviolet light. And the exposure time to the timing of the melanoma or other skin cancers is compressed. So particularly if you're under 18, your DNA is more fragile. And so that's why we're seeing an epidemic of melanoma in women and some uh, guys in their 20s who got a lot of suntan uh, bed exposure in their teenage years. It's a lag time of only five to 10 years, whereas traditional ultraviolet uh, sun exposure, it's the sun you get as a child that then sets you up in your 50s for the cancer. So avoid sunbeds at all costs. Get a spray tan. Yes. (laughs) All right, our last question here. Uh, This is from Roger on Twitter, wants to know, can men really get breast cancer? So the answer is yes. Obviously, we all have breast tissue, men and women. Men have much less breast tissue. Uh, and so I'm not talking about muscle tissue, but true breast tissue. Um, it's rare in men. Uh, obviously, about one in nine women will get breast cancer in their lifetime if they live to 80 or whatever. Um, so for men, though, particularly some of these genetic syndromes, the BRCA1 and 2, uh, male breast cancer is seen more frequently because these are highly penetrable genes that even though you have less breast tissue, you're at, your tissue is just at higher risk. So any man can get breast cancer. It's quite rare. If you're in a family history of women getting breast and ovarian cancer and you have BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation, then you, you should be monitored. So, but if you feel an abnormal lump in your breast, uh, man or woman, it needs to be evaluated. Is that also prevalent or more prevalent in the Jewish Ashkenazi? Uh, yes, just because they tend to have the genetic mutation more commonly. But I don't think it's independent, you know, independent of that. I still think you're at high risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, we have just been having such a fascinating conversation here about cancer research. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I mean, I know that you have such a wealth of information <laughs> yeah. here. Um, anything else you would like to share with our audience? Well, I, you know, we've talked a lot today about the breakthroughs in more advanced cancer with immunotherapy using the immune system or these gene mutation targeted therapy. We've talked about prevention and lifestyle that can really impact that. We've talked about if you have a strong family history, you know, being monitored and even participating in clinical research because despite lifestyle changes, you can um, still be at high risk if you have a family history. Um, but what I'd really like to leave with your listeners is, is, is that once you get a cancer, it's really important you pick your team wisely. If you have the opportunity, and I, uh, you know, it's not always the case, but if you have access to centers of excellence, particularly in your cancer, at least as an initial consultation, it's very, very helpful to get a, what we call a multidisciplinary team of doctors who treat a disease. I think they have access to not only the best cutting edge surgical procedures or the treatments, 
but obviously they have access to clinical trials. And you can also participate in, as we talked about, not just clinical trials, but translational research, meaning giving us an opportunity to use some of your tissues over time as you're monitored and help us make new discoveries to help your fellow man. And many patients are driven by that desire, not only to help themselves, but to help others. Because unless we help uh, the research community make new discoveries, we can't make progress. So our center at the John Wayne Cancer Institute, Providence St. John's in Santa Monica, does all of that. We have centers of excellence. We have translational research, meaning we have labs that are, that are processing tissues from our patients and discovering new molecules. And we have access to the latest cutting-edge clinical trials. So that's an example of, of where you need to go. And then always get second opinions. Have your questions written down. Bring someone else with you. It's hard enough to receive stressful information. The, our memories are not good in that setting. It's if at all possible, bring a significant other, a friend, or somebody that can sit there with you, take notes. I encourage patients to, to record my sessions if, if it's helpful. But, and, and you may need a few visits to let things sink in, and don't feel rushed to make an immediate decision. I think you have time. It's more important to get the right treatment approach than to rush the approach. And I see a lot of rushed approach based on fear, and, and so I, th I think those are the messages. And, and come see us at the John Wayne Cancer Institute if we can be of help to you at any point in your cancer journey. Yeah, say somebody gets a cancer diagnosis, an unfortunate cancer diagnosis, but you know is limited to their health care based on their insurance, and perhaps they don't know where to find a center of excellence. How would you direct them to pursue treatment? So the American Cancer Society, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, these are big organizations that have extensive networks and websites. You want to go to websites that have been vetted, that have authority and and truth in advertising. There's a lot out there that have misinformation. So go to trusted major websites or major cancer centers. Have All have our own websites. And go there, get some information. It's fine to explore things on the web, but do it from a foundation of knowledge and not starting with that. Because uh, it can be overwhelming and scary and misinformation can actually prevent you from getting the best possible treatment. Well, speaking of the right information, where can people go to find out more about the great work that you are doing with PSJH? So you can uh, go to futurepsjhealth.org and on social media at PSJH. Perfect. Dr. Stephen O'Day, thank you so much for being here and thank you for sharing your incredible knowledge with us and your stories and your journey as well, talking about cancer research. We appreciate it so much. Thank you, Julie. I very much enjoyed it. Hopefully I'll be invited back. Absolutely. We always love having you here. You're always welcome. And thank you to all of our wonderful listeners for sending in your questions. We appreciate it. And we look forward to a future topic with more wonderful experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow Providence St. Joseph Health on social media at PSJH on Twitter and Instagram and Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. And if you missed any part of the show, you are definitely going to want to listen to it again, and you can replay it on Dash Radio and share it with your friends. I'm Julie Alexandria. Thanks so much for listening.